You're listening to What the History, a podcast where two nerds talk about some awesome, crazy, random stuff you probably don't remember learning about, but you're going to now. Hey, nerds. Welcome back to another episode of What the History. Uh, This is Casey and Sarah bringing you today the last episode of 2020 and what will subsequently be, I think, the last episode of our first season. Yes. Right? So this is very exciting. We picked the most thrilling topic for both of us, which (laughs) is war. (laughs) Um, I don't really know why. And then I start, because it sounded cool in theory. The name of it is cool. And then I read it and I was like, oh, it's just people like shooting each other. Yeah, that's uh, so a funny story about this topic. The topic today is opium, the opium wars, not opium wars. Like <laughs> today's like opium the general wars, opium like war, a whole other. Right. Um, this is more specifically about what happened in the um, like mid 1800s in China between the Chinese and the Europeans. But my students actually do this project and they always pick this topic because they're like, oh, opium. And they end up with the same results that we did, yep. <laughs> which is like, oh, this is like kind of boring. And I'm like, well, yeah. you know, I'm, it's got some interesting factors. So like I even said before we started, like a lot of my stuff is mostly like trade relationships between the Chinese and the rest of Europe. Um, and then really just like the impact opium had and how the Chinese tried to fight back. So I don't really talk too much about like battles and stuff. Yeah, I have some because. I have some, but I don't know what any of it means. I'm just going to read it. Yeah. And of course, we picked like China. So, like, we can't pronounce anything. I've like skipped names wherever possible. Don't worry. Yeah. Yeah. I shortened as much as I could. Or I did like the English version of the word. (laughs) Yeah. So, you should see me trying to teach this. I always (laughs) assign projects for Chinese history because I do not understand it. So, I'm always like, you tell me about the Opium War. So that way, like, I don't have to worry about. teaching them about it. <laughs> Teacher hack. Just give them a project. Teacher hack. <laughs> okay, so let's get started. Um, This is definitely out of our wheelhouse. I feel like we normally try to, well, we don't try to. I think we just tend to stick to like European stuff. Um, yeah. But I definitely think moving forward, we should, we should keep expanding this because it is really cool to learn about other places. Um, So the basics of the Opium War is that the Opium Wars were, quote, a series of military engagements fought between Britain and the Qing Dynasty of China. So Qing is pronounced pronounced Qing, but it's spelled Q-I-N-G. I I did look Um, up how to pronounce that one because I was like, I have to say this one a lot. (laughs) Oh, good. I'm glad you did because my 14-year-old students are like, the Qing, the Qing, and I'm like, okay. Ching. I've said Ching. And I've even said to you, you're going to make a mistake, so let's learn it now. Ching. And they still go, uh, the Qing dynasty. And I'm like, okay, just sit down. I probably, I think before I would have pronounced it King, because I know Q doesn't make like mm-hmm. the Q sound. So I probably would have said King, but it's Ching. Yeah, which is, which is fair. But it's, when you've explained it, like they cannot pronounce Protestant. They say like Protestant. Protestant? Yeah. always and i'm like guys protestant that's yes (laughs) i just thought of that scene in avengers when iron man's like does mother know you wear a third drapes (laughs) like (laughs) 
<laughs> that just yes. went through my mind. Good. So, like I said, <laughs> the Opium Wars were military engagements fought between specifically the British and the Qing Dynasty of China, although the French do get involved in Sarah's portion. Um, and the immediate causes were the seizures of different opium stocks by the Chinese in order to prohibit and like end the opium trade that was pretty rampant there, which I pretty much go on like a not a tirade. It's kind of more like a I don't know, rant slash, I don't know, really long tangent. Yeah. Um, But the underlying cause was really the fact that there was a pretty major imbalance in the economic relationship between China and Britain. So you'll see when I talk about it, there were already a lot of like inequalities between the two and how those like inequalities kind of screwed up the whole system. Um, And this is also a really critical point in modern Chinese history the first war was fought between 1839 and 1842. The second was fought several years later from 1856 to 1860. But ultimately, it came at a time when the rest of the world was really expanding in their imperialist power. And China is going to end up losing both of these wars and is essentially forced to cede a lot of their crucial territories, which opens up more opportunities for Europeans to come in and demolish smaller, quote, less powerful nations in Asia. Um, And it really turns the Chinese government even more anti-West and anti-European than they already had been before all the BS kind of started. So I basically categorized my research into, I think it was like three or four different categories, most of it being the lead up to like what was going on in China at the time. Yeah. Um, So in the mid-1800s, the Western powers like France, Britain, and even the United States were starting to work to expand their imperial influence around the world. Um, They did this militarily, economically, and they basically spread, but I wrote, spelled slash pronounced forced their religion through Christian missionaries around the world. So we find it to be the case that like the Europeans started their infiltration through Christian service. yeah. So it's going to get more powerful um, over time, but this is kind of how they get their foot in the door, so to speak. So in Asia alone, European colonies had been forced upon places such as present day Indonesia, Vietnam, Malaysia, and India. India is going to specifically be like a huge one. Um, so in comparison, China was actually more effective than those other nations in responding to foreign imposition. And so for a while, they were able to resist any kind of outside influence, mostly because China didn't even rely upon Western trade in any capacity. In fact, that's actually one of the core reasons why there's such a conflict between these two groups, because like the Chinese were a far more advanced civilization that had already been around for thousands of years, whereas the British were like little man babies compared to them. Um, (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Sounds totally right. Totally on brand. So it basically is like, The Chinese government is pretty much like, now we really don't need anything that you have to offer. And so basically, there's no Western nation that can create a strong trade relationship with China. And so they're kind of pissed about that because they've become reliant upon a lot of the Chinese goods, which is what we'll kind of get into in a second. But in the same sense, the places where China was kind of, I don't want to say shitty, but more like incapable of 
really withstanding the Europeans in a different way was that they really were very conservative in their political, economic, and social management. And I don't say conservative like Republican conservative. I say conservative right. like they like only did shit. The word that they Exactly. They were doing shit the same for like 2,000 years. So yeah. after a while, that kind of becomes ineffective, especially as the rest of the world starts to sort of adapt and change. That part um, is like Republicans. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, which is funny because they actually had a fairly poor industrialization, like in terms of like modern indu- like industry. They were mostly mm. focusing on like peasantry. And um, it's interesting because if you think about China now, it's like, I don't want to say the total opposite, but like you look at anything like whoever you are, wherever you are, pick up the nearest thing and see where it was made. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I'm looking at the stapler in my house made in China. <laughs> like, literally, this was like four inches from my right hand. So yep. if you're driving, don't do that. Um, If you're not driving, do it. Go find Your something. Your car was in- probably not made in China, to be fair. Right. Probably not. Right. Maybe Japan. Um, maybe Japan. Totally. But Japan ends up... Actually, I'd love to talk about Japan at some point, too, because they have like... I always tell the kids it's like this period of like, you know, like when you break up with someone and you're like, I'm just going to like do my own thing and like I'm going to love myself and like all this shit. Right. And then all of a sudden it's like, I just want to be like ready so that when I'm like meeting the person of my dreams, like I'm prepared. That's kind of what Japan did. They like actually isolated themselves so significantly because they were like, yeah, no, we don't want to deal with this Western bullshit. We're going to do our own thing for a couple centuries. And then when they ended up like opening their ports again, they were like, okay, we missed a lot of shit the last couple hundred years, so we really need to catch up. So they, like, jump right into industry, and they jump right into modernizing and looking at Western culture and Western society and Western business, and they're like, all right, we need to, like, be, like join them because we can't beat them kind of thing. China, not like that at all. They straight up do, like, the complete opposite because there is that really strong sense of Chinese culture and superiority, especially yeah. in terms of like Confucianism and stuff like that. So the only way that the Chinese really were able to fight off the modern industry was because they weren't able to, well, no, they were able to hold themselves back because they didn't need anything from the West. Um, in fact, in the decades that led up to the first opium war, there was something called the Canton system. Um, and so the system had been established in 1757. It was basically based on this idea that there were political and commercial threats from abroad. Like I said, China was like not interested in dealing with anyone else outside of their borders. Um, yeah. And so it developed into the South China trading city of Canton or Guangzhou, which is going to be a pretty big place for a lot of the conflicts, um, at least for the first opium war. I'm not totally sure about the second. It comes up a few times, but I certainly wrote Canton every time. Yeah. <laughs> so there's like <laughs> two words that I can pronounce. And Guangzhou is like one of the two words. The other is. Oh, wait. No, it's not a word. It's a phrase, but it's uh, in okay. Mandarin. I can say, how are you? Okay. And I can count to 10 because that's what they Ooh. taught us when I lived in Singapore. They Fair. were like, you don't need to learn Spanish. Count to 10 in Mandarin. Go. So Fair. that's the only thing I took from it, though. <laughs> uh, I can say thank you, which is shi shi. And that's it. That's all I got. Okay. It's more than um, I can do. <laughs> well, now you know. And now everyone can walk around saying shi shi. And they know. Actually, did you? Ugh, I'm going to totally 
age myself here and no one's gonna know what the fuck i'm talking about um have you ever heard of the show sagwa the siamese cat no okay so you need to because like you love cats and it's like a cat it's like a little chinese cat and her cat family and they're like part of the emperor's family it's it's so cute like it's don't worry oh she's okay right her whole family is super cute and they kind of teach you about like mandarin and you know chinese history canadian american television series i'm sorry it's canadian of course it is chinese canadian american it's hyphenated (laughs) chinese canadian american (laughs) my sister sarah used to watch it all the time and we used to like not make fun of her but like the way that she would like sing the song we'd be like I was gonna sing it, but like I don't think I have the mental or emotional stamina to do that. Fair. But like the way that they sing Sagwa, like Sarah always like sang it, and it was just like the cutest thing. That's so cute. like most of what I know about Chinese culture comes from Sagwa, the Siamese Chinese Fair. cat. Um, <laughs> so the Canton system from 1760 to 1842, the major characteristics of the system pretty much developed, and all trade with any nation outside of China was directed through the city of Canton Um, and any foreign traders who came in were subjected to the regulations by the Chinese government. So what's interesting about this is there's this sort of sense of the difference between how Europeans conduct their trade and how the Chinese conduct their trade. Um, There's something a lot more like I don't want to say political with the Chinese, but it's a lot more about like honor and customs of the person that you're trading with and so a lot of times like british merchants would have to like bow down to people who are a part of the chinese government and they hated that they were like no we're not doing this shit um because to the europeans it was like free trade and you know you've got the real beginnings of capitalism and understanding like profits and people making their own money and you know there's like a level of respect but it doesn't have anything to do with like culture it's just like respect of like quote economic gentleman kind of thing yeah um so according to encyclopedia britannica the canton system quote consisted of three major elements the native chinese trade with southeast asia the quote country trade of europeans who attempted to earn currency to buy chinese goods by carrying merchandise from india and southeast asia into china and the china trade between europe and china so all that to say basically the Canton system really restricted the foreign trade and the British and other Europeans were not fans of it because it really kind of fucked them over. Okay. Um, so during the time Britain had worked within this system to develop a three country trade operation. So it shipped British silver and Indian cotton into China from India. And then it shipped Chinese tea and other Chinese goods like silk, porcelain, um, et cetera, from China either back to India or to Great Britain. So the balance of power in terms of trade is where the like major conflict is going to lie, which is what I mentioned earlier. So like British consumers were completely reliant on Chinese goods, especially tea. Like straight up, the only thing I can think of British people doing is drinking tea. Yeah. Like that's it. Like I think that's no, literally that's like, all they consume. That's their main. It's like how baseball is the American pastime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. drinking tea yeah is theirs is the british yeah exactly yeah. so they Not were like crazy reliant but... right i was gonna say i was like do you oh do you have a team like <laughs> no i also don't like tea but that's not the point baseball is literally the most boring sport oh, yeah 
that you okay, can watch so on television other than golf. I'm, other than golf. I'm not a sport person at all. And it's partially mm-hmm. because I'm very not competitive and I don't really like competition. And okay. so one time when I was like 21, 20, I was with a family friend on like a college break and we went to a baseball game and like the mom and I brought a book, but we were still there. And at some point I do remember like crying actual tears because they kept booing one team and I felt really bad because I was like, if you're doing, they're doing a good job and they're getting booed for doing a good job. (laughs) And I felt so bad that it made me cry. So that's how I do with baseball and other sports. I'm the same way, except when it comes to the New England Patriots. I will literally watch that team lose and burn and and take pure enjoyment out of it. Any other team I feel like bad for, but there's something about the Patriots losing that like gives me life. It doesn't happen (laughs) often. Like, and I don't watch them just to lose because it would be, I never would watch them at all because they always win. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) I think I have a couple Patriots fans that listen to. So like, sorry, not sorry. I feel Um, like they know that everyone hates them though. I think that's why they like it. They like relish it. Yeah. Which I don't know. I don't understand. Um, how did I get onto the New England Patriots? Um, <laughs> oh, tea. Tea, right? <laughs> of course, that makes perfect sense. Uh-huh. Um, but but honestly, though, like baseball is the type of sport that you could watch, fall asleep like four hours later wake up and nothing has changed and the game is still going on it's like the worst and of course my husband loves baseball like it is his diehard favorite sport good um anyway love you babe so the imbalance that the lack of reliance on behalf of like the chinese with british goods like the british weren't producing I don't fucking know. What do they produce? Wool sweaters. And the Chinese were like, we need their wool sweaters, right? Like, there was no need for anything that the British were producing. So the Chinese were kind of like, all right, well, you have to pay us in silver, which is crazy expensive. Like, a lot of these trade relationships were mostly like, okay, we'll give you wool sweaters in exchange for tea kind of thing. Right. Um, But instead, the British had to use silver to pay for the purchase of Chinese goods, and there was no equivalent. So in the late 1700s, And this is where it gets really fucked up. Um, The British attempted to change this imbalance by replacing the cotton that they produced in India with opium. So this is the disclaimer part of the episode where I start talking about drugs. Um, I don't really go too much into it. This is always the part of the lecture in class when they're like, who's Fitzgerald? What's opium? And I'm like, ah, like what level of expertise should I present to you? Like, I don't want to sound like I know too much about it, but I also want to stress that it's really fucking crazy. And like, yeah, what the British were doing was deliberate. So I never really know how to like toe that line. Um, That's fair. I don't want to tell them too much. Right. I don't want to be like, opium, guys, listen up. It (laughs) is crazy. (laughs) Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. the dinner table like oh miss fitzgerald taught us about opium today and i'm getting a call from the principal like what are you doing i mean it's basically like morphine isn't it yeah and that's actually where opiate opioids get their name because they have the same characteristics in terms of like addictiveness and also just like how they affect your body yeah um so the opium that was sold in china was made from the sap of poppy plants 
which I don't know if there's another way to make opium, but um, there's a couple of pictures when I was doing my research that are just the extensive like poppy fields in India. And they're actually really beautiful, but it's actually also kind of crazy. Um, I also read somewhere when I did, do you remember that D.A.R.E. program? Oh, yeah. Like, what was that? What does that stand for? Drugs, Drugs are, are really evil? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Um, <laughs> Drug abuse resistance <laughs> education. Drugs are really evil. That's better. I like it. Better. I think it should be a petition to change dare to meaning that. Yeah. I will um, sign. I remember like hearing that you could like eat a shit ton of poppy seeds and then if you like were to go take a drug test, it could come yeah. up as as that. As yeah. Which is like crazy. Like how many fucking poppy seed bagels do you have to eat in order to have that happen? A lot. A lot, know. yeah. So, like these are bagel. weird. I remember too, not understanding as a kid the scene in, I think Wizard of Oz where they all fall asleep in the poppy field. Oh my god, yes! It like, and knocks the, them all out. Holy shit! Yeah, and then she puts snow, and then that wakes them up. Yeah, but if you and I were to run through a field of poppies, would the same thing happen? I mean, I nap a lot, so. <laughs> So does that mean it would be easier to push you to sleep or harder? Probably. <laughs> Honestly, easier for me too because Honestly, I could fall I just, asleep like, do they anything. Look comfortable, sure. <laughs> I could literally fall asleep anywhere, like borderline Mr. Bean in Rat Race when he's. Oh my like, god! Did you ever see? That? Excellent reference. I <laughs> loved that movie. Oh my god! Me too. Me too. And he like falls asleep standing up. Like he had like quote narcolepsy, which that's not what narcolepsy is, but that's what they call it. At all. I actually dated a guy with narcolepsy and it was when he first told me about it I was like you mean like Mr. Bean and Rat Race it's <laughs> like I have, no I have a friend who listens hi Curtis um with narcolepsy and it's not that he just like falls asleep standing up no not at all it's like your body doesn't go through the stages of sleep I think and yeah. so it's some people like I think that the guy that I dated wouldn't sleep for like days and then he wouldn't wake up for like days it was crazy right and then you're like um, really sleeping during the day right yes yeah exactly um because your body gets most of its rest in that like other stages of sleep you're only in right. your rem state for like i don't even know a certain amount of time that's not where you get a lot of your sleep i think a lot of the sleep comes like in and out so yeah damn like we are tangenting left and right i it's love we're it bored. <laughs> I'm so here for it. <laughs> I hope that's what would happen. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. So the opium. So the British knew, this is where it's so gross. The British knew that opium was addictive and they knew that it could be used both recreationally and medicinally. But the British started to supply it and also advertise for it in a way that was recreational. So what they started to do is they developed a monopoly over opium that got sold and shipped to China. So because of this, more and more Chinese people began smoking British opium recreationally because it was what was accessible and it wasn't necessarily expensive. Right. It could actually be like given to anybody no matter what your social class was. So even if you were a farmer who was like, you know, a peasant for like the 20th generation, you too could also afford opium. But the addictive nature of opium basically made it grow even more 
dangerously for the Chinese. And so people who stopped ingesting opium quickly suffered from, quote, chills, nausea, and cramps, sometimes could die from withdrawal depending on how much they were used to consuming or, you know, the age of the person. Um, And people would start to do everything and anything to obtain the drug. And they would go to, like, opium dens um, where people would spend basically like days at a time in these like opium induced trances and like every time i've seen pictures of it it pretty much just looks like everyone's high and sleeping yeah with like for the stressors and the harsh labor of like a lot of the chinese like lifestyle i mean that was like pretty damn good right i mean other than the fact that your like body is addicted to the opium like that's that was like a communal thing to do um and the Chinese government quickly recognized this as like a huge social issue, um, which I thought was actually kind of comparable to when we talked about um, uh, Susan LaFleche when she oh, yeah. looked at like alcohol as like a social, like a health, public health issue. Right. That makes um, sense. Yeah. And the Chinese did, too. They were like, OK, yeah, this is really bad shit. We got to quit this. Um, so in the year 1800, only like a couple decades after the British had introduced opium recreationally the Qing government banned the production and importation of opium and 13 years later it completely outlawed the smoking of opium and any offenders who were caught with it or selling it or taking it were punished with being beaten a hundred times so something really (laughs) this is again like a total tangent but I think it's kind of cool um so when I was moving to Singapore when I was seven I want to say it was 1998 there was um, an American expat boy. He was like 17 or 18. I think he was 18 who like vandalized cars in Singapore and their form of punishment was beating him with a cane. And there was like a whole big deal about it because like the British, not the British, the American government was like, okay, now you can't beat this kid. He's an American citizen. They're like, well, he was illegal, like of legal age in both America and Singapore and he broke Singaporean, like, law. So right. it was, like, this whole fight. So he was actually in prison and, like, caned. Where they, like, just huh. beat the shit out of him with a cane. And okay. I remember thinking that that was going to happen to me oh. when I got there. <laughs> like, I straight up was like, oh, my God, they beat kids with canes? Like, what? What oh, the no. fuck are we doing? Why Did are we going over there? No, no, I didn't. Not not well, there. That's good. <laughs> it worked. It scared you. Not in Singapore. I'm just kidding. Well, I never vandalized a car. It scared you out of it. I guess it did. I could have been like, I could have been a total vandal at nine years old. Like, really, we don't even know. Yeah. My whole life could have changed. Um, it's not like I have crippling anxiety or anything like that. No. Um, <laughs> As opposed to so... then when you thought you were going to get caned and definitely didn't have anxiety. Right, right. <laughs> It's like just been developing and morphing as my life has progressed where it's like, okay, canes. She's afraid of canes. Work with it. Work with it. How can we make her more afraid of canes? Like, Make sure she doesn't do anything wrong ever. (laughs) So, yeah, Um, I just thought it was interesting that there is this really big sense of like corporal punishment. Um, I don't feel like we see that in America. Like not the same way. It's just incarceration. Yeah, right? I mean, probably like would it be times. better? I guess what I mean, like, would it be better to just like I don't know, beat somebody up and then be like, all right, go, don't do it again. 
Or like, should know. we imprison people? I don't really think any way is better, but like, no, and I, it probably depends on what you did. Right, right. So for these people, it's similar to like drug offenses, basically. Um, so in response to the Qing government outlawing opium, the British East India Company started to hire private traders and they started to transport the drug into China, where then Chinese smugglers would buy the opium from the ships that were anchored off the coast of the Guangzhou coast. So like the um, the Canton coast. And they would then, like, float back and then distribute it throughout a network of Chinese middlemen. So, basically, it was like a drug ring in 1800s China. Right. Um, I mean, I don't really know a lot about drug rings, but I imagine they all work pretty much like this. Uh, (laughs) Like I said, I'm just thinking of, like, uh, Breaking Bad, and that's pretty much the extent of which I know about any type of, like, how drug rings work. Fair enough. Um, in 1834, the British East India Company lost the monopoly to another company. Um, and in order to gain more customers back, they lowered the prices of opium, making it even more accessible for the Chinese to buy, therefore extending the amount of people who were addicted to the drug. Um, this was a great quote that I thought summed it up because there's numbers and I hate trying to figure out numbers. Yep. Uh, quote, in less than 30 years, from 1810 to 1838, Opium imports to China increased from 4,500 chests, the large containers used to ship the drug, to 40,000. As Chinese consumed more and more imported opium, the outflow of silver to pay for it increased from about 2 million ounces in the early 1820s to over 9 million ounces ounces a decade later. So now what has happened is it's flipped, whereas like the British yeah. were basically paying the Chinese with silver now the Chinese are paying the British with silver because they've finally gotten them a product that they're reliant upon the British for. To make the matters worse, uh, the Chinese emperor discovered in 1831 that members of his own army and government and students were engaged in smoking opium. Uh-oh. And needless to say, the government, yeah, was pissed. So they started to get even more serious about enforcing the ban. So they started to close opium dens. They executed any Chinese dealers found to be dealing the opium. Um, and there were kind of two schools of thought that basically developed from this situation. So basically, like, how do we approach this whole opium epidemic, right? Like, how do we fix this? So one side was more focus on being pragmatic than moral Uh, and basically it said like okay i don't really care about the morality of using drugs or selling drugs i care about like the legality of it like we don't really give a shit doesn't make you a good person or bad person it's more like this is harmful so let's try to like target the people who are using the opium by making it legal and then heavily taxing it to the point where they can't afford it and so people will just stop smoking it and so That was more of like the practical sense of like, I mean, I kind of thought of the legalized marijuana thing um, because I know New Jersey just voted to legalize that. But it's very different because opium is nothing like marijuana. But in my head, it was kind of like, okay, like legalizing this drug and taxing people for it might deter people from doing it illegally. And a lot of times, too, there is this sense of like, if something's illegal, it makes it more... I guess, like enticing in some right. respects. Um, so that was the more prag- like pragmatic viewpoint. The other side was led by a man named Lin Zexu. Zexu. 
Z-E-X-U. Lynn. I'm going to call him Lynn. We're going to call him Lynn. Yep, man named Lynn. Lynn. <laughs> Yo, Lynn. Lynn Manuel uh, Miranda. <laughs> but, well, I think that's part of why I avoided calling him Lynn. Because I was like, Lynn that's Manuel fair. Miranda. But if we're going to call him Lynn. Manuel. Man, Manuel. <laughs> Lynn, not Manuel Miranda. Argued that opium was a moral issue and that the, quote, evil had to be eliminated however possible. Therefore, they believed that they should be punishing the people who were pushing the drug rather than those who were taking the drug as it ultimately would lead to the destruction of China from the bottom up. So basically, like, the people who were selling opium knew full well what they were doing because it was going to ultimately destroy the Chinese economy, society, anything like that. So Lin's side wins the argument, of course. Um, and so in 1839, uh, he arrives in Guangzhou to supervise the ban on the trade, as well as crack down on the use of opium. So he writes an open letter to Queen Victoria and calls her out, which is so fucking cool. Like, he's super badass about it. He's basically like, how can Britain claim to be this, like, moral nation and yet willingly push drugs onto innocent people? Which is, like fire pretty much yeah. everything else he does is like almost as not as badass as that because he really does call out the hypocrisy of it um he arrests over 1600 chinese dealers seizes and destroys tens of thousands of opium pipes um and he also demands that any foreign companies that have opium turn it over to them in exchange for tea so basically <laughs> <laughs> treating one drug of choice for another so yeah. like Give us your opium and we'll give you the tea. Right. Like um, just, we'll give you the tea and nobody gets hurt if you just correct. stop. <laughs> if you just give us the opium, <laughs> which I think is funny that the British weren't like, give them everything we got. <laughs> right. <laughs> We're going to cut off our supply. You know what I mean? <laughs> so um, the British shockingly refused and Lynn stopped all foreign trade, shut down the area, quarantined any foreign merchants and cut off their trade, basically just shut down Canton and was like, no one comes in, no one goes out at all. European, British, Chinese, nothing. And it stayed that way for about six weeks until the merchants gave in to his demands and the British surrendered about 2.6 million pounds of opium. Uh, in addition to that, he hired a bunch of like random Chinese merchants to seize and destroy any opium that was left over by the British. So they actually took the opium, mixed it with lime and salt, which made me think of tequila shots. And then they dumped the opium into the bay. So I have to admit that like I have always wondered without really realizing what I was wondering, why didn't they like <laughs> why didn't they burn the supply of it? And then I really realized what that would mean which would just straight up be yeah. getting the entire city of canton high on opium but they could just like go out with a bang like one last everyone's real high and then there's no more yeah so part of me like i i think i distinctly remember like a kid asking one here why didn't they just burn it and i was like i don't know that's a great question without ever thinking oh that's why they didn't just burn it like they had to make it unburnable and unusable because if they had just burned it like i mean that also could have been like the coolest fucking battle that's ever taken place in world history but that's not how it happened um and so therefore with the destruction of all of this opium this is like the straw that breaks the camel's back for the british and we have the outbreak of da 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 the first opium war so <laughs> this is where i pretty much just give a really basic overview of what yep. happens so in the eyes of the british this was like a, the biggest affront you could 
possibly give to them. Um, it was undignified and all concepts of free trade and, you know, equal trade partners had kind of just been totally demolished. And even before this, a lot of merchants and smugglers had basically said that China was out of touch with, quote, modern and, quote, civilized nations. And I made sure to quote civilized because this is, again, the Eurocentric concept that, like, a society that doesn't look European must not be a civilized nation, which is, like, their basis for pretty much all imperial takeovers for, like, their entire existence. Right. That's so, what I'm saying. Right. So in their minds, you know, China was incredibly uncivilized in how they responded to this situation. Um, They didn't have normal trade relationships. They didn't practice free trade. And so the officials um, basically started to formulate some type of treaty or negotiation. And British representatives like requested merchants could turn over their opium to Lynn and the British would compensate like be compensated for the losses. So like we're going to try to avoid a major conflict. We'll give you what we have. You give us the money that we would have gotten for it and we'll just get the hell out of here and we'll be done with it. But the Chinese government was like not going to do that. And so eventually the British decided to act more forcefully in order to expand the British imperial interests and control in China. So war officially broke out in November of 1839 when Chinese warships clashed directly with British merchants. Um, the British warships destroyed a Chinese blockade of the Pearl River estuary at Hong Kong, and they started to eventually go up the Pearl River. And that's actually going to be their biggest battle strategy from what I could understand that like they pretty much attacked China within because China is so land-based. They had to get, whatever they could along like port cities in their major yeah, riverways. There's some of that in mind too, where like the only thing they can do is try and use the water. Right. And at this time, threat. like the British is incredibly trained and well-equipped and they've got, you know, the best Navy in the world really at this point, they really don't lose unless it's like American revolutionaries. <laughs> so, and like occasionally the French. So in June of the following year, 16 British warships arrived at Guangzhou, and over the next two years, the British forces destroyed forts, seized different cities, um, attempted any kind of negotiation that they could. And the British Navy, like I said, was the most powerful fighting force in the world. So the Qing armies already had their work cut out for them. And unfortunately, they were not even close to being as equipped or organized as the British were. And this is in part due to the fact that they were not as industrialized and the fact that they were more closed off to the expansion of ideas. Um, even though gun gun gung, <laughs> even though gunpowder was invented in China, there really hadn't been a lot of expansion in terms of their weaponry and fighting styles for the last couple thousand of years. So they were super outdated. Um, and Lin, the guy that we were talking about before, still knows this. So his response is to basically arm the people of china um he raises money for small militias so small villages could fight back um he recruits employed unemployed tea porters which i think is really funny that they were unemployed because they didn't have a job because they were no longer trading tea with the british because they were yeah. fighting them um they were paid six dollars a month to be soldiers i don't know if that's a lot or not um i i imagine it's a lot yeah but i don't actually know sounds like a lot yeah. <laughs> Sounds great. Um, fishermen, same thing. They were paid $6 a month to patrol and raid um, the British ships and boats. They offered money to everyday people to kill members of the British military if and when possible. Um, and he also attempted to copy British weaponry and strategy. He purchased 200 cannons, shipped them to Canton, 
trying to basically staunch the British invasion. But as time passed, the British continued to proceed up the Pearl River estuary, um, eventually to Canton, and they attacked and captured one port and blockaded the others. So they essentially like starved out the people living inland. Um, in January of 1841, the initial agreement to end the crisis was reached by both Chinese and British representatives, but the agreements were not accepted by either government because they didn't want to actually concede anything. Shocker. Um and in May of that year, British forces attacked and occupied the city uh, and eventually fought in other areas of the country for at least a couple years or January of 1841. So at least the next year. Yeah. Um, some guy uh, replaces another guy. Sir Henry Pottinger replaces Charles Elliott as a superintendent of trade and orders British forces to occupy cities along the coast. In the spring of 1842, the British fully resumed their offensive position. They continued to travel north and took cities such as Amoy, Tinghai, and Ningpo. Uh, in May, reinforcements from India arrived, and Wusung, Shanghai, and Zhenjiang were taken. Um, Zhenjiang was a really important communication center, and it was actually one of the biggest ports or places that they could have taken because it basically cut off regions of china from one another um which made it super difficult for them to get any type of like information out there okay that makes the sense. war yeah uh the war officially comes to a close when the british captured nanjing or nanking i don't really know why they changed one letter nanjing or nanking yeah i, I don't, don't know. know i'm gonna go with nanjing because i think that sounds cool so, the first Opium War ends in 1842, when Chinese officials sign, at gunpoint, the Treaty of Nanjing. The treaty provides excellent benefits for the British and literally nothing for the Chinese. Um, some of the benefits that the British got were, including, but not uh, completely, the entire port of Hong Kong. So, this is actually, a, this is, like, huge. Um, if you think of anything to do with British colonialism... And even just major business, Hong Kong is still like a primary place for even Western trade and Western finance. And that's actually a big part of why it is the way that it is. Um, they had a huge compensation paid to them um, and to both the British government and merchants. There were five new ports at Guangzhou, um, Shanghai, Zaimen, Ningbo, and Fuzhou. Uh, where British merchants and their families could reside and could also trade equally. Um, there was something called extraterritoriality, which is another treat of a word for my students to try and to attempt Ooh, to say. Yes. Um, so basically, <laughs> any British citizens that resided in those ports were subject to only British laws, not Chinese laws. So like... If you did something that was against the Chinese law, okay, well, it doesn't matter. If it's against the British law, that's a whole other story. It, like, took precedence. Exactly, yeah. Okay. Um, and then it became – they did something called a, quote, most favored nation clause. So any rights gained by other foreign countries would automatically apply to Great Britain as well. So, like, if the Chinese set up, like, a good relationship with the Portuguese, whatever the Portuguese got, the British got too. So – for China, the Treaty of Nanjing literally provided nothing. Um, Chinese imports of opium rose to a peak of 87,000 chests in 1879. The opium trade did not stop. Um, but after that, it started to decline. And eventually, 
China's going to outgrow foreign production um, because the opium production in China is going to increase. But there's also going to be further conflict um, and more political struggle between like a peaceful faction that's basically like aligned with the people who are using the drug and a war faction, which is kind of aligned with the people who are pushing the drug. And so that peace is not really necessarily going to last for too long because as you're about to get into, we got part two of opium wars. Yeah. Literally the top of my page says part two electric boogaloo. So that's (laughs) how well I was entertaining myself here. On fire. (laughs) Yes. So basically there's a whole second part to this. Um, it's pretty similar. So it's the British and the Qing dynasty. Um, France gets involved at some point later. Of course they do. And so this is the the second opium war. It's also sometimes called the Arrow War. I found a few places, Mm -hmm. um, which is like a reference to a ship that kind of starts a lot of the conflict. So in 1842, the treaty that you just talked about, the Treaty of Nanjing, um, it basically gave a bunch of stuff to Britain, right? It gave them all these different things they wanted, but it still didn't satisfy their goals. Um, they mm-hmm. still wanted more trade, more diplomatic relations. And so that's going to end up leading to a second war. So as the 50s start, you have even more growth of like Western imperialism. They just keep doing their thing where they take over because they've decided they're better. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the Western powers kind of start sharing more goals, right? They want to expand all their overseas markets. They want to establish these new ports. And it's not just the British, it's the French, it's a lot of Europe, it's America. Russia comes into play, even though they're not Western. Um, But basically, they just want more than they got out of this first war. And the treaty had a provision that after 12 years, it could be renegotiated. So they have to, you know, wait a little bit. before they can do that, but then they start demanding changes. So Mm -hmm. they demand a handful of changes. They want to open all of China to British merchants, legalize the opium trade, (laughs) exempt um, foreign imports from duties, so not pay taxes, basically, suppress (laughs) piracy, regulate the coolie trade, um, get a British ambassador to reside in Beijing and have all treaties be in English instead of China and have that version take precedence. Oh my god. That's so, so ridiculous. Yeah. So they want like literally everything. They're like, yeah. okay, I, I know we won, but I want a lot more because mm-hmm. white people. Uh, yes. But they were like, well, for all of this, we'll give Chinese ships the exact same access to ports that we have. So basically that would make it even. Right. Obviously. Except for the fact that the Chinese didn't need a single fucking exactly. thing. It like doesn't really them. help them at all. <laughs> right. Yeah. So they kind of are going back and forth on this. And in October of 1856, Chinese Marines in Canton seize a cargo ship called the Arrow. So that's where Arrow War comes from. Um, they say it's on suspicion of piracy and they arrest 12 of the Chinese crew members. So the ship had previously been used by pirates that were captured Mm. by the Chinese government and the ship was resold. So it got registered as a British ship, flew the British flag. Its registration was technically expired, but this was sort of wrong just because, I mean, morally wrong, but also like incorrect because it was no (laughs) longer a pirate ship. 
Um, right. It just used to be. And so they got confused. So the British consulate demands that, you know, they immediately release these 12 prisoners and they apologize because they took down the British flag. And this was seen as like a huge insult. So those were literally their demands. We're like, yeah, give us our 12 people back. But also, please apologize because you hurt my feelings. Jesus, the fragile white European man. It's really unbelievable. Exactly. So they release nine of the prisoners. Um, But they keep three. (laughs) I, I don't know how they decided. I was gonna say why? Like, did they just like pull straws? They're like, ah, all right, you're. One yeah, of the I don't know how they days. decided, but they were like, well, here's most of them back. That should be fine. <laughs> and the British, like, if you do a fraction, fine. this is the majority. I think. It, yeah, it's three, <laughs> two thirds, three quarters. There three you quarters. go. There you go. <laughs> um, and so the British are like, well, no, and they start destroying barrier forts and kind of different acts of aggression. They aren't allowed into the city when they demand it. So this was funny to me. They start firing one shot every 10 minutes, which is said in the stuff I read is like this huge act of aggression. And it is, but also now it's kind of funny because one shot every 10 minutes is like pathetic now. Yeah, I feel like it's more to be annoying than anything else. Yeah, I don't think they weren't shooting at anyone. I think it was just to be annoying and like, we're still here. But it's just funny (laughs) because I mean, not funny, but I feel like in a minute you could shoot like hundreds of times now. But that's it. I feel like there is something so inherently childish about these like old, like european people that yeah it's like fine. It every 10 minutes every 10 minutes and you'll never forget we're here and it's <laughs> like oh my god <laughs> put our flag back on our ship it's like children it's like i'm yeah. not touching you you know what i mean like that's what it feels like basically yeah and there's there is like a bounty put out for the captives um so they do this for about six days trying to get in <laughs> Um, Wait, they do this for six days so almost a full week? i think four days is when they were bl- doing the every 10 minutes from what i could see but this whole thing has been about six days that they've been like trying to get in through the barrier forts and stuff i want to do the math of how many shots that is i'm gonna oh do it right God. now keep talking okay so after those six days they blast a hole in the city's wall um to get in Three people end up dead and 12 people end up wounded from this explosion. And someone, literally, there's just a random sentence on the article that's like, this guy planted a U.S. flag when they got in. And I don't know why, because the U.S. is not involved at this point. (laughs) But there was some, like, U.S. military guy there. So he planted the U.S. flag just to, you know, make sure we got that there. Oh, fucking And I didn't, I was like, I'm sure I could look this guy up and find a very good reason for why he was there. And, like, what was happening, but it was more fun if I didn't. (laughs) So they make their way in. They try negotiating, but that doesn't happen. And so the city gets bombarded. But this is going to happen a few times in this second opium war. They have a bunch of, like, pauses for talks. Um, So, like, the British are kind of bombarding them at intervals, causing fires, like, different acts of war. But then they're, like, taking a break. And then they'll go back to it. (laughs) And so January of 1857, the British actually retreat because there's an election. So they like take a little break for their election on parliament. There's like no organization to this. It's It's like, it's like, oh no, wait, we've got to go and elect our people. And it's like, what, what just fucking fight? Like, what are you waiting for? No, They're literally like, we'll be back. Nobody move. We'll finish this <laughs> later, but, like, we got to have a parliament election. And there's a few votes in parliament on, like, how to react to the destruction of the... Or the capture of the arrow ship. 
like oh, okay. the incident and all that. So they take a little break. Oh, um, I have a number, by the way. It's 864 okay. shots. Okay. Which doesn't seem like that many, but I don't know if I did no, my I math mean, literally right. literally you could do that in like two minutes. Right, but, today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so during their elections, the British also goes to the United States and Russia to try and form alliances, but both of them are like, no, thank you. <laughs> so thanks, no thanks. Yeah, while they're trying to figure out what to do, in May of 1857, the Indian mutiny becomes a big thing. And oh, yep. so British mm-hmm. troops that were all set to go back to China got diverted to India because it was considered the priority. And basically that became the focus. So they actually weren't focusing on this opium war in China thing. Yeah, absolutely. During this, France is mad at China for like a completely unrelated issue. They executed a French leader. France is not happy about it. So they come to the British and are like, hey, we'll join this with you. And we'll fight the Chinese. Because I guess, like, we're mad they killed someone, so we'll, like, take away their trade ports. Unclear. But (laughs) they decide to help. You gotta love the French that are like, you know what? We haven't really been involved in a while, so let's just jump on in, right? What else are we doing? Yeah. Let's not give our people basic rights. Let's just get involved in China. Exactly. So the French... The French... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the French and the British. Honestly, that's the perfect. Yes, the French. Henceforth, they, no, that's the French. Yes, they join forces. <laughs> they form like a joint committee of an alliance and they start to occupy Canton. Um, later on, the United States and Russia do kind of come back. They send envoys, envoys, whatever, to help with, to offer like military aid to the British and French, though Russia ended up not really sending money or very much help, just enough to say they participated. Yeah, that sounds um, right, too. <laughs> so all these British forces and their allies begin assembling in Hong Kong. And by December of 1857, they have sufficient ships and men to raise the issue of like the treaty obligations that they feel like have been breached at this point. Please keep in mind that there's been a year since these Arrow people got captured and they're still um, there. Are they still captured? At, in December 1857. So then oh the British and the French threaten an ultimatum that gets them released. So they're captured for over a year. So they actually said an ultimatum that worked. Yes. So they get released, huh. but they do not receive an apology or agreements to any terms of treaties. <gasps> How dare they? So it is agreed upon <laughs> that Canton would be attacked. Of um, course. Yes. Because what else are you going to do? Right. They gave you the people, but they didn't do what you wanted. So they decide to attack them. So on January 1st of 1858, they capture Canton. So it's a city with a population of over a million at the time. And less than 6,000 troops enter. So they do have, you know, some casualties, like 15 people are killed, 113 are wounded. And then another, like, Somewhere between two and seven hundred people in Canton die. Wide range. I mean, that's okay. like British or Chinese. So it says, I believe Chinese. It says defenders and inhabitants. Okay, yeah, that so makes it seems sense. like at least mostly Chinese, unless there was like other British people who were just living there or based there and not part of the war. You know, and not to like negate like deaths because every death matters, but like that's nothing. Compared to the, you said there's 1 million people that live there and yeah. what you lost, what was the maximum they lost? Like 650. Yeah. I mean, that's, you didn't even break a thousand. Yeah. Hmm. 
And they do. So there's this guy, Yi Ming Chen. Oh, that um, was good. In, oh, good. He is, he's a high-ranking official who comes up a lot. He was involved in some of the Arrow incident stuff. So at this point, he's captured and exiled to Calcutta, um, where he starves himself to death. So, bye. Oh, well, there you go. Um, <laughs> That's one so way to do it. Once that happens, the British attack, there's pretty little resistance. So even though number-wise they're small, they're winning, basically. Um, my favorite side story here that I just enjoyed because it's a nice fail. So during all this in Hong Kong, there's an attempt to poison John Bowring, who's the governor of Hong Kong, mm-hmm. and his family. So it's known as the Essing Baking Bakery incident. But okay. <laughs> the person who tried to poison him, so he tried to lace bread with arsenic, which seems mm-hmm. like a good way to poison somebody. But he used so much arsenic that everybody vomited right away. Oh, and so there no. wasn't enough poison in their system <laughs> to kill them. So he got like... <laughs> Come on, that's poison 101. You want enough that you don't know there's poison in it. Exactly. And so this is like not consequential to the rest of my notes. I just thought it was a really funny story. Um, yeah. I mean, it is like part of the war, but it's just like, yeah, he tried to poison them and he put so much, they vomited and were fine. And then like, you know, they put out criers and like no one got that bread anymore. What does arsenic taste like? I don't know. Does it taste like anything? Arsenic has no smell or taste, so you cannot tell if it is in your drinking water. Oh, fuck. That's terrifying. Yeah, that's what I thought. It was, like, pretty undetectable. Yeah. So, Agatha Christie says it's sweet in her novels, but... Hmm. She lied. And then someone else says it's tasteless, so you can mix it with sugar and the victim doesn't notice. So, that means that you must have put so much arsenic in that bread that immediately vomiting yeah that's it's ridiculous yep um so meanwhile back in britain during all this they're like equivalent of the house and parliament passed a thing that was like you know we didn't really say you could do all this in canton like (laughs) we didn't really authorize this whole thing and it oh my god led i like cut this it basically led to parliament dissolving in a whole new election (laughs) Holy like, shit. All these issues. And so there's a whole new parliament and it gets led by a guy who's pretty anti-China. So this new parliament decides to officially seek redress from China based on the Arrow incident and the reports that were submitted about that. And right. the French Empire, the US and the Russian Empire receive like renewed requests to form an alliance. Huh. Um, so there's then there's just a section literally like on Wikipedia too called interlude. And it's basically a little um a little break in the war that we're going to take. Oh my so, god. In June of 1858, a treaty is signed. And so the war at that point is considered ended. Okay. So it's Britain, France, Russia, and the US are all parties in this treaty. Mm-hmm. It opens 11 ports to western trade. Wow. And even though the Chinese initially refused it, they did ultimately agree, and there's basically five things that it did. So those four countries, Britain, France, Russia, and the U.S., had the right to establish diplomatic, um, like, embassies in in Pe- Peking? Peking? Okay. Peking? I think Peking. Peking. Yeah, I think Peking, which was closed at the time. Okay. Um, they got 10 more Chinese ports open for trade. Yes, I just said 11. Yes, it said 10 and 11 on the same page. Um, <laughs> one of those. 10 and a half. Yeah. We're going to just go right in the middle. 
Yeah, they got the right for all um, foreign ships, including commercial ships, to navigate freely on the river that was closed to them in China. Um, the right of foreigners to travel to China was mm. given, so it had been banned before. And then China had to pay a large indemnity to Britain and France. For uh, what? They already are for the first one. Unclear. They had to pay 4 million tails of silver to Britain and 2 million to France. Tails of silver? T-A-E-L-S? I don't know. That's what it said. No, I think it, I, that sounds, I mean, it doesn't sound right, but it doesn't sound wrong, but I'm just imagining. Yeah, it's, it just. I'm like, imagining tails, like a, <laughs> right now there's like a little salamander that lives in my basement. <laughs> oh, and I'm help. imagining. <laughs> Says the woman who lives, who's lived in Florida with like oh, geckos know, but I was and shit. Terrified of those little lizards growing up. Yeah, no, they're everywhere. I know. And I was, I am too. So scared they were everywhere in Singapore, and I remember. Um, yeah, I'm just imagining like a tail of like a gecko or something in like a silver in tail, silver. and that's like how they pay. <laughs> like this tail's not long enough. You know what I mean? Like that's what I'm imagining right now. Fair. Uh, History is weird. History is weird. Um, And so there's also a separate treaty signed with Russia specifically to revise the Chinese-Russian border, um, giving Russia, like, the left bank of the Amur River, pushing the border south, just changing some of the the geography. And this later gets amended a little bit to give them more area. But basically, Russia has a separate deal going on that lets them negotiate the border to be what they want. Which is so weird to me because, like, they didn't do anything no they did not do anything like there was no like real conflict but i guess maybe this is like the treaty renegotiation yeah like they kind of thought it ended but then there's like a whole what i've written as a whole last second phase oh, um because it just all <laughs> starts again kind of part two of part two <laughs> yeah exactly part two of part two so oh. basically the Qing um imperial court agrees to all these treaties and like what they call hawkish ministers prevailed upon them, like all this stuff that they don't want. Um, And they order some of the Mongol generals to guard the Taku forts. Um, And they like reinforce these forts. They add a bunch of artillery. They bring in a bunch of cavalry Mm -hmm. and they, they start to protect these forts because they think they're going to be under attack. Right. Um, there is a big battle here. So there's three battles ultimately at these Taku forts. Um, one of them, the British fail pretty miserably. So they try to forcibly <laughs> sail through the river because it's like the only way they can get there. But there's a really low tide and it's full of soft mud. And so they like can't get there. And right. then in addition, these cavalries that have been set up are firing cannons that sank a bunch of boats and damaged others. Um, oh. And so ultimately, they they don't really get through and there's an american person here who like technically was under orders to maintain neutrality because they weren't part of this war um he did provide some cover to like the british convoy as they retreated and basically were like never mind never mind okay. um and so that was seen as a fail as a, like a blow to the prestige of the british and their army um and then within like the ching court anti-foreign resistance kind of starts growing right because they they get over that yeah i mean there's also like a shit ton more of foreign influence than there was beforehand yeah for sure so that makes sense yep and they're on like a little high from 
um, winning this one battle. And this is also, like, not anti-foreigner because, like, really, this is, like, people who are infiltrating your entire social right. structure this and they're basically like trying to, like... Right, exactly. Yeah, this is more like these people are straight up taking everything about our culture, our lifestyle, our economy, our politics, and they're, like, just yeah. screwing with it. So, exactly. Yeah. Do you think that's why white people think that's what immigrants do? It's because that's what white people do? Um... Yeah, I would say that's probably fair. Yeah, I would like definitely the say that there's is, it's to take over, right? Or it's it's to benefit others, right? So right. like it's it's that idea of like your culture is better than other cultures. So I definitely feel like that's part of it. I would also say that's definitely the case in terms of like if you look at xenophobia against European immigrants in like the 1800s and 1900s, that's definitely yeah. like fear of. The, like catholic religion taking over and shit like that so yeah i think you're right it's probably rooted in this idea that they're gonna like take over because that's what all immigrants do but that's only what people in they do. western nations do to other nations yeah basically huh yeah anyway so during this time <laughs> the indian mutiny also gets kind of like taken care of so it frees up a bunch of troops and supplies to get sent back to china mm -hmm. um and some of the generals there had experienced like casualties from disease during the first opium war and so okay. he wants to help so he provides the british forces with a ton of materials and supplies to prevent these sorts of things okay um so they're kind of stocked up and in the summer of 1860 they decide to come back so they bring in 173 ships and capture the ports um to seal off like the gulf near china and so they're able to land near bitang um, which is near the Taku forts. It's like two miles. And then after about three weeks, they capture them. So they succeed this time. Um, there were some notes that Southern like Chinese laborers actually ended up serving with the French and the British in this case. Really? Um, That's interesting. Yeah. And so there was an interesting quote that was, he called them renegades, though they were served the British faithfully and cheerfully. At the assault of the Peho Forts in 1860, they carried the French ladders to the ditch and standing in the water up to their necks, supported them with their hands to enable the storming party to cross. It was not oh usual to take them into action. They, however, bore the dangers of a distant fire with great composure, evincing a strong desire to close with their compatriots and engage them in mortal combat with their bamboos. So they like there's this kind of faction that ends up helping and it might just be to kind of save their own asses. but. They end it's up the, if you can't beat them, join them kind of mentality. Yeah, that's yeah. possible. Huh. Now I'm just going to read a wild aside. So yes. they're able to, so they kind of win this part of the battle. And the British French forces start marching inland towards Beijing. At this time, the emperor dispatches people for peace talks, um, trying to, to kind of peace talk. But the British, um, the British diplomats insult the emperor the imperial court and it turns out like word arrives before these peace talks that the british kidnapped the prefect of tianjin which is where they had captured um then okay. i always have to remember prefect is like a real thing right i but... was just thinking of percy weasley so exactly <laughs> so this guy this british guy gets arrested um and him and all his little people are imprisoned and interrogated and then during this imprisonment interrogation, half were reportedly executed by slow slicing. 
with the application of tourniquets to severed limbs to prolong the torture. Oh my god. Oh, that's a Wait. Cool so they would like slice Wait. part of your leg or arm and then tourniquet Ugh. it so you didn't bleed out. Ugh. And then do like another slice. Oh my god. Right? Oh my god. Oh. Not good. Just like. Slow slicing? Slow slicing. That makes me think of deli meat. Yeah, that's basically what I picture. Which makes it grosser. <laughs> yeah, I looked at, like, so, like, there's a page, it's, I guess, like, a common Chinese torture tactic that is where the term death by a thousand cuts comes from. Uh, T-Swift's song is so good, but yes. Oh, so good, yes, already singing so it. <laughs> but yeah, too. basically just taking small parts at a time. Um. So yeah, so that wow. was cool. Um, and this obviously pissed off British leadership because they recover the bodies that are like unrecognizable and cut into a bajillion parts, and they're not happy about that. So Ugh. they released ten thousand troops. Uh, or no, they excuse me, they annihilate ten thousand troops. Read that backwards. Um, they annihilate ten thousand troops. That it literally says ten thousand troops, including the elite Mongol cavalry, were annihilated after doom frontal charges. So like wow. they, there's like a big battle and they take out a ton of people. Uh, like so many people. Wow. Yeah. So after that, any surviving diplomatic prisoners are freed. So anyone who didn't get slow sliced to death. Um, <gasps> and they order the summer palaces to be destroyed. So at the time, Beijing wasn't occupied. They actually still remained outside the city. Um, they talked about destruction of the city. Um, to kind of discourage the empire from using kidnapping as a bargaining tool and to re take revenge. Um, because they had captured and tortured other people in addition to this group. Right. Um, but they ended up settling. Kind of the British, the Russians, and the French all decided we'll settle on burning the summer palaces. Since it was the, quote, least objectionable and would not jeopardize the signing of the treaty. So they're like, okay, if we don't burn Beijing, if we we'll just, just burn, the burn their summer home, it really yes. won't mess anything up. Wow. And like, then they sign another treaty. Um, after all this, like, I this is what I don't understand about war. It's like, hey, we have like a diplomatic problem that's like a fair problem, and we're mm -hmm. just gonna kill a bunch of people about it. Like, it right. doesn't. I I remember being little and being in school and being like, I don't get it. How do you win a war? Like, yeah, like there's you really there, you don't no. you don't no. like there's no way to win a war no because it's like everyone like at some point you're losing something yeah yeah this um, is why women should run the fucking world I'm mm -hmm. sorry I feel like there would no, be way right. less physical conflict oh yeah if women like ran shit because yeah. like women understand also, women compromise would know how much arsenic to put in your bread. For sure. For fucking sure. I almost Googled it, but then I was like, I don't need the, the FBI cop? showing up at my door. Yeah. Fair. Because you know, me, I'm the one that they're monitoring right now. I'm sure of it. Yes. My luck, uh, though. <laughs> the depressing thing that happens when they, like, burn all this stuff down is that... So, okay. So, in 2007, Wikipedia won, a, like, the world record for the largest encyclopedia in history. Oh, that's cool. Before that, it had been the Ming Dynasty Yongle Encyclopedia, which was looted and destroyed by the foreign soldiers. So only 3% of it survives today. So wow. it still was like the largest one in history, but it wasn't in existence. And that's 
impressed me in okay. like a Library of Alexandria type way. Yeah, that's really shitty. Yeah. Oh. Um, so they go ahead, they ratify the treaty, um, bringing the war to an end. So in this treaty, the British, French, and Russians are all granted permanent diplomatic presence in Beijing, which was something that the Qing Empire had like really resisted because it implied equality between the powers. And so they did not want that, but they're granted diplomatic presence. They again, China has to pay a bunch of these silver tails. So eight million to Britain and France. This is like war reparations that are gonna bite everybody in the ass yeah. after World War One. Yep. Um, so the opium trade is legalized. And then Jesus. Christians are granted full civil rights, including the right to own property and the right to evangelize. Yuck. Yeah. And then in addition, you know, so they signed this treaty. It opens Tianjin as a trade port. They cede a district called Kowloon um, to Britain. So it's next to Hong Kong and Britain gets control of this small district. Freedom okay. of religion. This one phrased it as freedom of religion is established as opposed to Christians are allowed to evangelize, which I think is just the same thing. LOL. It for sure is. Um, It also sure. opened up the ability for British ships to carry indentured Chinese to the Americas. So oh, cool. yeah. That's actually going to be a huge part yeah. of, like, the building the Pacific. Yeah. So that's sort of, like, the outcome. Um, It's mm. seen by the British and the French as, like, this huge triumph, right? Especially for the British Prime Minister at the time, whose name I love. Oh, his name oh is Lord God. Palmerston. Oh, I like that. That's it feels fancy. very. I'm watching that show Bridgerton, and it feels like a character in that. Is it good? Because I haven't watched it yet. Oh, so fun, so great. I'm oh, not I can't like wait. Historical romance person, but it's campy and great. But it oh, feels like I totally am a character named Lord Palmerston. <laughs> um, so, so he becomes like very popular and well loved. All these merchants are really happy because they can expand trade in the Far East. Other foreign powers are happy because it means they can take advantage of China opening up. All this stuff. Yeah, this is actually when they established something called the open door policy, which is pretty much just like anybody can go in or out of China and trade mm -hmm. with them, which is like what really like a normal country. Up. <laughs> well, no, it yes and no, because yeah. this is kind of more like we're going to just hold the door open and not let China actually have any real benefit from it. But we're yeah, going to like take everything that we can from them. Yeah, because I think what's frustrating is like. Part of me wonders if the Chinese had been more open to a European style, would the Europeans have felt the need to like keep taking or would they right. have felt like they got their fill kind of thing? Like, cause a lot of this just feels spiteful. Yeah. You know, yeah, like you're not going to compromise. So we're just going to take it all. Take everything. Yeah. As like to prove a point. Exactly. Yeah. So while it's seen as this like big thing in, um, in the West, it's a pretty big blow to like the Qing army and the Qing um, dynasty. So yeah. like when you look at the numbers, the, the British French military force were like really outnumbered by at least 10 to one, e even though they wow. won. Um, yeah. And then you have the emperor who ended up fleeing and eventually dying the burning of these summer palaces. It's all like a really big blow. And so it's kind of said like, by 1860, this ancient civilization of China is thoroughly defeated and humiliated by the West. Um, what's interesting is that 
not that much later, so about 30 years later, there's a new British prime minister named William Ewart Gladstone. Also Ooh. sounds fake. Um, and he was like <laughs> really against the opium wars. Um, so when he was a member of parliament, he had called it the most infamous and atrocious, referring to the opium trade. Um, so he was really against the wars, really against bringing opium to China. It's believed that was because his sister Helen had been addicted to opium. And so oh. he was really against, like, pushing it. Yeah. And so he ended up denouncing all this violence against China. And he criticized it as, quote, a war more unjust in its origin, a war more calculated in its progress to cover this country with permanent disgrace. So wow. it doesn't really help anybody. But not that long later, Britain's officials were like, ooh, we didn't mean to to do that. Yeah. Um, so it's, like, just interesting how in 30 years it changed so much from, like, literally dissolving Parliament and starting stuff new to do this to being, like, no, that was probably bad. I think in part that's due to the fact that the British were now starting to put their focus on Africa. Um, I think that there's this weird shift in just from what I've studied and what I've taught over the last few years. Like, there's almost this, like, shift of, like, basically taking whatever resources you can get and then like implementing your own culture onto a society because you want to quote, improve that society. Like that's kind of where the shift comes from in terms of imperialism. I feel like, like the British towards the end of the 1800s into the early 1900s, have now focused their energy on like Africa. And it's more about like, Oh, well let's go into the continent and like quote, help the poor African people who can't like quote, you know, civilize themselves. Whereas this seems very much like we're going to take everything that we possibly can from them. So it's like, they're, they're almost more like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like self-righteous in their yeah. conquest. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a more subtle fucked up way of imperializing. Yeah, that makes sense. That's my musing. I don't know if that makes any sense, but yeah. Yeah, I think so. But yeah, so that's that's the opium wars, which are less cool than they sound. Because it's yeah. because it sounds like they're about opium, but they're actually about like trade borders. Right. Yeah, it is. And 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 I think the opium wars are an example of like like kind of like what I was saying, like one way that the Europeans or really just the West, because the US isn't exempt from it, um, really yeah, takes true. over this whole new idea of like going into a nation and taking whatever they can from it. And it's also going to set China up too to be so anti West that you kind of open up the the door for like the communist party to eventually like take over. Yeah. True. That makes so, sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's the opium wars friends. And that's, that's uh, the season closer <laughs> for 2020. So um, Sarah and I are going to go on a little bit of a break, uh, probably come back early February. We want to yeah. um, kind of get some feedback from people with, you know, what they liked about the first season and figure out some places and directions that we want to take the podcast. Um but just for for me, I just want to say thank you all so much for a really exciting opening season. Yeah. Um, 
2020 was for sure a dumpster fire, but I think one of the best things that came out of it was this experience of getting to work with Sarah and just kind of getting to interact with people in a different way. As of right now, we have almost 2,400 all-time downloads, which is like so cool. Yeah. So I just want to say thank you for that. Yes, we appreciate it. And we're excited to to come back and do more and 2021 to be less terrible maybe yeah yeah hopefully <laughs> hopefully man Fingers i'm like well. a little afraid i'm gonna like i don't want to put anything out there you know i'm gonna know. pretty much just i think i'm gonna sleep all of new year's because i just want to wake up and it not be 2020 anymore you know i'm gonna do what is it you're supposed to eat like black eyed peas i should do that what it's a southern thing i started seeing it when i moved to um the south and there's like certain things people eat. I think black eyed peas and maybe something else. Um, and it's supposed to bring good luck for the new year. So maybe the fact that I didn't eat black eyed peas because I don't like them fucked everything up. Yeah, it was probably your fault, Sarah. Mm-hmm. Everything about this year was your fault. So I hope you really take that into consideration come Thursday evening. I will. Um <laughs> All right. Happy New Year, everyone. We will see you in 2021. Stay safe. Wear a mask. Eat those black eyed peas. Yes. And we will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to What the History Podcast. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at WT History Pod. You're also welcome to email us at whatthehistorypodcast at gmail.com with topic suggestions or questions. Please subscribe to the podcast so that upcoming episodes show up in your feed and we will talk to you soon.